stay standing for a second. You know, when you come together like this, when we worship together like this, you got to know that it really blesses and pleases God. That He is smiling down on you right now because you have made the choice to come and worship Him. And the Bible says that when you make that choice, just as Tox said, then He meets us at our point of need. And wherever you're at, whatever you're facing, He's here to meet you at your point of need. Not just to kind of give a life principle, but to actually have an encounter with you. And if you will open your heart and open your mind, in the next few minutes as we open up His Word, He wants to have a divine encounter with you if you will let Him do that. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you were here before we got here. And as much as you want a divine encounter with us, Lord, that's what we need too. So we open up our hearts, we open up our minds. Spirit of God, would you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 15, 13. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may overflow in hope. May the God of hope, it's actually who he is. It's in his nature to be a God of hope, and he wants to pour that into you so that you will have joy and peace. You know, if you have hope, true hope from heaven, you can navigate any issue and any circumstance in life. But if you don't have hope and despair sets in, while you quickly feel and sense life just simply falling apart. And this morning, God wants to deposit in every one of us in here a hope. Not just an optimism, but a hope that comes directly from heaven for every one of us. And to know what that hope is and to be able to live in that hope, we're going to study a person who I think it's so great that God put this individual and gave her an entire book. Because through the Bible, you have great you know, men and leaders and figures like David and Paul. But then God says, no, there's this girl in her 20s. And what she did in her life is a lesson for everybody to learn from about what hope is. And her name is Ruth. And I encourage you later today to read this little four-chapter book in the Old Testament. But to understand the lesson of hope for our lives, we have to go back and understand the story. There was a lady named Naomi, and her and her husband were Jews. They lived in Israel. But things were really difficult in Israel. There was a famine. There was hardship. So they emigrated to another nation called Moab. Some of you have immigrated to New Zealand. They did the same thing. Moab was known as the enemy of Israel. Moab was a nation that worshipped really evil and horrific gods, but they were looking for a better life for themselves, so they sold their land. They gave up that identity, and they emigrated into Moab. And we know this because they had two sons, and they gave them Moabite names. And these two sons married Moabite girls. So that was their life. They had detached themselves. But then tragedy struck the family. Naomi's husband died. Then Naomi's two sons died. And she's left with just two daughter-in-laws, and she has not many options. She's old. She won't get remarried. She can't work. She's going to live out her life in pretty much abject poverty. So she decides to go back to Israel, and she gathers her two daughter-in-laws together, and she says, listen, I'm going back to Israel. That's not your best interest. Now, they know they could, she could really use them. She could work. They could work and give her food. 
They would be a great support to her. But what she tells them is go back to your families. Go back to your families, get married again. That's in your best interest. And one daughter-in-law does that. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, is so impacted by the sacrificial love of Naomi. She's so impacted that although it would be a huge help to Naomi if we came along, Naomi is saying, no, 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 she's looking for our best interest, that Ruth has this moment of conversion. She has a moment of faith, and here's what she says in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth talking to Naomi says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now, language in there is she is making this statement of hope and faith. She is making a choice that her life will be lived by a hope now in God. And she's serious about this choice. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. Hope is a choice that you make. You make a declaration just like Ruth made a declaration. Your God will be my God. I'm going to make this divine choice. It is not an earthly natural choice. Hope is not optimism. Optimism looks at what is seen, and it has a desire that circumstances will change. So it is on very shaky ground. And when circumstances change, there is an emotional relief until the next hardship. That's optimism. But hope looks at what is unseen. It looks at the kingdom of God. It looks at who God is and his character, the God of hope. And it establishes itself based upon this choice that you make. Ruth is moving to danger. Her situation is not going to improve. She cannot be optimistic because circumstances are not going to get better. She's the enemy. When she moves to Israel, there has to be directives given to workers saying, don't rape her, don't kill her. Because she's the enemy, and they can do anything they want to. She's going to be the outcast. But now she has a hope, and a hope changes your outlook on life. Your circumstances may not get better. Your circumstances may even get worse for a season, but your outlook has completely changed. Your God will be my God. And you do this with a level of intensity. Every day you make this choice. Because you're in a battle and life this side of eternity is sometimes hard. It's like every morning you wake up and say, today I will live by hope. I will not fix my eyes on the circumstances, but my hope will be based upon Jesus and who he is. That's why Hebrews 10 says this to us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. It's like the Bible says, you got to get this. It's going to be rough. And you got to hang on to that hope every day. And if you hang on to that hope, God's going to navigate you through that. A little while back, I was in a country where they, everybody travels by train, developing world country, and it's so crowded in these trains that you don't even need to hold on to anything. You just stand there, and there's people all around you so that you're never going to fall over. You're just, they're going to hold you up. We were on our way. It was a couple-hour journey. You know, we're about halfway there, and we stopped at a stop, and I just needed to get out and stretch. So I told the pastor I was with, I'm just going to get out and stretch. So I got off the train car and I stretched myself and a whole horde of people got onto the train. And now the train started pulling out. So I had to hop back on the train, but there was no room. So it's an old train car. There's just three metal steps. Then there's just the doorway and there's these bars. And the only thing open was the bottom stair. 
So I jumped onto the bottom stair and just held on the bars on the outside of the train car. Now we're going like 40, 50 miles an hour, and I'm holding on to the outside of this car on this bottom stair, looking at the ground as we're flying down. The, and it was kind of fun. Really, I, I, this is kind of cool. This is a new experience. No problem whatsoever. I can hold on here. It's kind of how we are. You know, life's good. I'm holding on. And then we went around a corner. And I didn't realize it because I hadn't been paying attention, but there was a man on the second step above me, a very, very large man, and he fell into me. (laughs) Now I've got this huge guy has fallen into me. Now I'm really holding on because I'm looking at the ground and it's no longer fun. I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. I'm holding on. And and I look at him and his face is just right here and he's laughing in my face. He's laughing and smiling, and I'm thinking, where's the humor in this? I think I'm going to die. And I thought, this is a picture of our faith and our walk in this life. It's like Hebrews says, you got to hold on, and you're holding on, and it seems okay. And then all of a sudden, life goes around a corner, and this weight falls into you. And you feel like you cannot hold on any longer. And that weight sometimes laughs at you. You see no humor in this situation whatsoever. Hebrews says, you got to hold on. on. Every day you have to make this decision. But Romans 15 says, you don't do this in the natural. You do this by the power of the Holy Spirit where you can rely on him. My prayer was, Jesus, you got to give me strength or I'm going to fall off this thing. This is how hope works. It is a choice that you make. Every morning, Holy Spirit, give me the power to put my eyes on what is not seen, on who you are, and help me just to hold on to that hope. You make that choice just like Ruth did. So they move to Israel, and Ruth begins to work. They're poor. Naomi can't work. They don't own any land. They have very few options. There's a law that God made in Deuteronomy that says if you own land, do not harvest the outer edges of the law. Let the poor people harvest that. Ruth qualifies as this poor person. She's this Moabite pagan, and she begins to do just what's laid out before her to do. It doesn't look all that exciting. Doesn't seem like doing this would be an answer to any hope. This story is recorded to us in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Here's what it says. So Ruth entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters. It just happened she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband. It just happened that Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. She simply begins to do what's set before her. And it's a picture. We don't just choose hope. It's a choice you make, but then hope is an action that you take. And sometimes that action looks really ordinary. In the book of Ruth, there's not a single miracle. There's no supernatural divine act of God. Nobody gets raised from the dead. No nature changes. But do not think for one minute that God is not thoroughly involved in what's happening. And sometimes we have to do what looks very normal and ordinary, but God is very active. If you don't have hope and you lose your job, you go, why should I even apply for a job? 
And applying for a job seems to be really normal and ordinary. And sometimes we're waiting for something supernatural to take place and we're paralyzed. Ruth goes, if this is what's laid me for me, then this is what I'll do. And the story goes, it just happened that she chose the field that Boaz was at. It just happened that when she was there, Boaz had to come back. And the storyline is this. When you do the ordinary, God is doing the extraordinary, and it just happens that the coincidences work together. Our first daughter, biological daughter, we knew God wanted us to have a family. We had a hope for a family. And then my wife had two miscarriages. Despair can set in. It's really hard. We said, no, we're going to adopt we went to an agency to apply to adopt, and they said, no, no, you don't qualify. And despair sets in. Choose to hold on to that hope. Yeah. So I was going to China, first time ever, just to kind of explore the land for two weeks, meeting with different pastors, different movements, just to understand what God may be having to do there. Now, follow this story. There's a Christian man who lives in Beijing, China. And he sent a fax, that's how long ago this took place, 20 years. He sent a fax to a ministry in America that doesn't work in China. They only work in Russia. So this ministry in America gets this fax from somebody they don't know. They don't know why he sent it to them. They don't know how he got their number. And they have nothing to do with China. So they just get this fax. But a week before, it just happened that I was talking to somebody in that ministry. And I mentioned that I was going to China. So it just happened that the guy I was talking to was the guy who got the facts. He said, oh, I'll just forward it on to Joel Holm. He's going to China. It just happened that that fax came to my office one hour before I went to get on a plane to go to China. So I grabbed the fax and I just stuck it into my briefcase. And the fax was basically the name of this guy, his office number, and would you please come work in China. I stuck it in the bottom of my briefcase. I went to China and I traveled around for two weeks just exploring the land. Well, God, what would you have me do here? I'm in Beijing on the day I'm flying home, but I have a flight late in the afternoon and it's in the morning and I've got nothing to do and it's a national holiday, so everything is closed. So I thought, I got nothing to do, I'm gonna repack my bags. So I decided to repack my bags and it just happens that this fact sheet of paper that I'd stuffed in the bottom literally fell out. And I remembered it, oh yeah, that's right, I'd forgotten about it. But I looked at it and thought, it's just his business line, everything's closed, it's a national holiday. I thought, well, I'll give him a ring anyways, I'll leave a voicemail. It just happened that on his way home, he stopped at his office literally for two minutes just to pick up some papers. And it just happened that I rang him while he was in the office for two minutes. And it just happened that rather than letting the voicemail pick it up, he decided he would pick up the phone. We began to talk. He said, Joel, I would love to sit down and talk to you about China, have a cup of tea with you. But this is Beijing, China. It's a city of 30 million people. You know, you could be two hours away. Where's your hotel? It just happened that my hotel was right next door to his office. <laughs> Don't clap yet. I'm not done. It just happened that I could walk out of my hotel, walk into his office. It just happened that he was an international lawyer specializing in adoptions. When I'm telling him my story, he goes, you know what, Joel? I can get you a child, you and your wife, and I'm going to waive all of my fees, $12,000, because of what you do. I was blown away. I get on a plane. I fly home that evening to Chicago. My wife meets me at the airport. We get into the car. I said, before you drive away, i got to tell you a story. And I tell her the story, and she is weeping and weeping because of the goodness of God. We hold hands and we pray, and it just happened that at that day was the day our daughter Lisa from China was born. Now this is a just happened God. Do not diminish 
the ordinary when we have an extraordinary God working behind the scenes. Ruth just does it. Some of you in here need to choose hope and then just do what looks really mundane. And God is at actively working. So she just shows up, it just happened, Boaz is there. It just happens that they meet. Boaz gives her a bunch of extra food, you know, so that they can, she takes it back to Naomi with this food. Look at, I met this guy named Boaz, look at the food. And all of a sudden the light goes off to Naomi. Naomi goes, he could be the guy. What do you mean he could be the guy? Remember, they're in poverty. They have very little options. But there are two laws that God has made that Israelites live by. One's called the kinsman redeemer law. That law states that if your family loses its land, somebody in your clan can buy that land back for you and give you that land. Then there's a second law that says if you're married but your husband dies before giving you children, one of his family members, brothers, uncles, can marry you to give you children for your lineage. And Naomi realizes this guy Boaz, he qualifies. He could buy the land back from us. He could buy it for us. You could marry Boaz. Naomi's too old to be married again and have children. He qualifies. But think of what they would be asking Boaz to do. Buy land at a very high price that won't be his. He'll have to give it back to this family. Marry a pagan that everybody in the village and town hates, that is not allowed to go into the temple, that changes your identity, and then make her an heir of all of your wealth, even though she's done nothing to help contribute to it. Who would ever do such a thing? Do you see the picture of Jesus? Because we're Ruth. And Jesus came at this great price and he bought us back. The Bible says literally he made us his wife. And we were the outcast while we were yet sinners. We were the unholy, unrighteous ones. And he made us an heir to all of his kingdom resources, even though we did nothing to contribute to that. And there's this picture of the immensity of the love of Jesus. But in the natural, this is an outrageous moment. How is Boaz going to do this? And then Ruth does the unthinkable. She literally goes to Boaz and she proposes marriage. Now, when you read the story later this afternoon, the language she uses is throw your garment over me. It's an idiom for saying, let's hook up, let's get married. In that culture, a woman was barely human. Nobody would ever, ever do something so countercultural, so outrageous. I mean, can you imagine if Ruth put this on eHarmony.com? Pagan Moabite woman looking for a devout Jewish man must buy me land, crabby mother-in-law included in the deal. <laughs> Who's going to do this? She does something outrageous. Sometimes when you choose hope and then you act on hope, God has you do the mundane because there's an extraordinary God working behind the scenes, but then sometimes he has you do something outrageous, an act of faith 
That almost seems countercultural, but you do it because of the hope that you have. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And there are some of you in here, and you're going to choose hope, but God's going to ask you to do an act of faith that is outrageous, and you can do that because of the hope you have, just like Ruth had. You see these stories throughout the New Testament. There's a lady, and she's got this issue of sickness. She's bleeding in that culture. She's unclean. She's not allowed to go out in public. She's not allowed to be with people because she's unclean, but she has a hope in a coming Messiah, and she hears about Jesus, and she goes out in public, and she literally fights through the crowds just to touch the hem of his garment. Why? Because she knew the prophet Malachi had said, when the Messiah comes, he will come with healing in his wings. And that word wings means the tassels that are on the garment of the Messiah. So she knows the prophet and she has this hope. So she says, I don't care what people think. I don't care the stigma. I'm going to fight through this crowd and I'm going to touch the hem of his garment. She acted on a hope. There's another lady and she's got a bad reputation, but it's deserved. She'd been married five times. Now she's shacking up with a guy. The village hates her and she hates the village. So she goes to the well when nobody else is there. And she meets Jesus. And now she gets this divine hope and she does the outrageous. She goes right back to the people she hates and who hate her and says, I got to tell you about Jesus. What hope do you have like Ruth had that you are willing to do the outrageous to see that hope realized like Ruth was? And it's not anything in the natural but you know you have this hope. I have a friend, early 50s. He had such a hope that God was calling his life and vocation to a real significance that he changed careers. He went back to law school in his early 50s. That's insane. But now he's a lawyer bringing God's justice to victims of injustice. But because of his hope, he said, I'm going to do something outrageous. I'm going to switch careers when nobody says I should switch careers. We know this young couple They really feel like God has called them to build a family, not biologically, but by adopting children who have really are kids at risk. Nobody in their extended family has ever done this. Parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents. They all think this couple is crazy. They don't understand it. But what they're doing, very countercultural to their own family, they're doing something outrageous based upon a hope that they have from Jesus. I know a young man who's in his early 30s. He's got some really bad habits that are destroying his life. He's got this hope that Jesus can set him free from these bad habits. And he does the outrageous. He sits down in a small group with other men and he tells them about his bad habits. That's the outrageous. He no longer stays hidden in that, but he says, no, I have such a hope that I'm gonna do something outrageous. I'm gonna share my struggles with a few other guys. That's the act of faith on that hope. Ruth had this hope that caused her to go to Boaz and says, let's get married. What hope do you have? And what act of faith may God be asking you to step out in? Because you have that kind of hope. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is being certain of what we hope for. When you know your hope, you choose hope, then you act on that hope. And sometimes the action seems really mundane, but God's working. And then sometimes God says, okay, I want you to do something outrageous here. I have such a hope 
of how God wants to provide and take care of me. I'm going to give an outrageous donation that seems so ridiculously large and unnecessary, but this is the hope that I have. And God calls us into making this action. So Ruth does this, and Boaz seems keen for it. But then what happens in the story is what happens to all of us all the time. Boaz says, listen, Ruth, I found out there's somebody else in the village who's actually more in line to do this. So you're just going to have to wait. And Ruth goes back to Naomi, and she is flustered, and she's kind of upset, saying, wow, I stepped out in faith. I did this great thing, and now I have to wait? In Ruth 3, verse 18, Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. I choose hope. I act in hope. And then I got to wait? I hate waiting. Do you like waiting? I hate waiting. I can't stand it. It's like the worst thing on this planet to do is to have to wait. I hate waiting in traffic. I hate waiting for, I, my internet is too slow. And no matter how fast it'll get, it's still too slow. Yeah. I was at the grocery store. I don't know how it is in Auckland, but they have an express lane. Yeah. 10 items or less. Yeah. I got into line, the lady in front of me had 19 items. Yeah. And I know because I counted every one of them. Yeah. And my blood pressure's going up because I have to wait. I mean, I know our society is falling apart, but could we at least follow that one rule of the express lane? Then she does the unthinkable. She pulls out a bank checkbook to write a check. I thought, am I in the 1980s and people are writing? My blood is boiling. I hate waiting. But you know, waiting for people, I understand that. Waiting for God, when he can do anything at any time, and I got to wait for him? Ruth chooses hope. Ruth acts in hope. And then Ruth has to wait. We choose hope. We act in this hope and faith. And then we have to wait. And if we do not understand what waiting is, our hope will fall away and despair will set in very quickly. Because we have this wrong idea of waiting. We think waiting is simply what we do as a lever to get our problem solved. And once our problem is solved, we don't have to wait anymore. But the Bible teaches a much different theme of waiting that's actually this enormous promise and blessing to you. Start with the creation story. We're created by God. We're perfect, but sin comes in. We need a redeemer. We have to wait for a redeemer. Finally, God comes to a man named Abraham. He's going to start his redemption plan. Gives him a promise of a son from whom the redeemer will come. Abraham has to wait almost three decades for that promise to be fulfilled. How long have you been waiting for a promise? Finally, Isaac is born, Jacob, Joseph. They're now a family, 12 tribes. They're a nation, but they're in captivity in Egypt. They wait 400 years for a deliverer named Moses. Moses is raised up. Finally, wow, now we're going to be delivered. They get to the edge of the promised land, but fear and doubt come in. Now they got to wait 40 more years wandering around the wilderness. Finally now, Joshua takes over. They go into the promised land. They settle. There's prophets and they're kings. They're waiting for God. You close the book of Malachi and you open up the book of Matthew and 400 years have gone by. You can understand why the disciples of Christ come to him and one of their first questions is, now? Now will you set up your kingdom? Thousands and thousands of years we've been waiting. Will you finally now set up your kingdom? To which Jesus says, nah, you got to wait a little bit longer. And he dies, and he resurrects, and his last command to them is go and wait. They don't know if they're going to wait for a day or a month or a year for the Holy Spirit. They're not given any instructions, just go and wait. 
They go and they wait and the Spirit comes. Churches are planted, the gospel goes out, but even as you get to the book of Revelation, you discover here we are the church and our one prayer to Jesus is, we're waiting. Please come back. We're waiting. And from Genesis to Revelation, you have this thread that waiting is a part of living a life of hope. It is not just what you struggle through until your answer comes. And you have to have the right understanding of it so that everything God wants to do in you through waiting takes place. See, we have this wrong idea. We think of waiting for God like going to visit a doctor. I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but in America, when you go visit a doctor, you make an appointment. I went to the doctor a few months ago. I made an appointment for 2 o'clock. This information is absolutely meaningless to my doctor. He could care less about it. He knows he's not going to see me at 2. I know I'm not going to see him at 2. But I show up at 5 minutes to 2. And my doctor is so brash, he actually has a room called the waiting room where you wait for him. And everybody sits there, and there's nothing but 10-year-old magazines, and there's nothing to do. And you sit there patiently waiting for this doctor. This is how we see waiting for God. He's there, just waiting my turn. I hear other people. They get their turns. The nurse pops his or her head out of the door, and everybody kind of leans in. Finally, now will my name be called? And of course, she calls the name of the person next to you. You're going to slump back down again. When you see this as waiting, despair sets in. God's back there. I believe he exists. I hear him doing stuff for other people. When's my turn? But the Bible doesn't teach that about waiting. Here's what the Bible teaches in 2 Peter 3.8. To the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow in doing what he promised. The way some people understand slowness. But God is being patient with you. Maybe it's God who's in the waiting room, and we're back there doing a bunch of stuff. Here's what takes place. When you wait, God is active, but he's not just active in resolving your need or your desire. He wants to be active in you. He wants to do more than just bring an answer. He wants to bring himself, and he transforms you. And when you are truly transformed, and all of a sudden, joy and peace that Romans 15 talks about, when it's actually there, you discover, wow, what came into me during this waiting was more significant than even the answer I was hoping for. Because there's this transformation that takes place. That's why Isaiah can say, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Is he nuts? I'll renew my strength when you answer my problem. That's a short-sighted view. God is answering your need. Ruth, you got to wait. Because what I will do in you, joy, peace, faith, compassion, what I will do in you will sustain you through any crisis, through any season. Christ will be formed in you. So we actually say this prayer. Lord, if it means postponing your answer, to have Christ formed in me in a greater way, postpone it. Because I want to be strong, and I want that kind of an energy. And so we wait. Some of you are here, Ruth, Naomi, it's a story of parents. And some of you are here, and you have adult children who are not walking with Christ. And despair has set in. And you hear me say, choose hope. God has not abandoned your child. 
God is working in your child. You may not see it. You may not know it, but he is at work. And so you act in that hope, and you wait. But while you are waiting, you are getting stronger. Because you don't wait by optimism. You wait by this kind of hope that is available to us. And here's why you wait. Because the story doesn't end with waiting. You get to the end of the book of Ruth, and you know what discover? Ruth and Boaz, they get married. And they have a child named Obed. And God answers on two levels, always. Level one is where their need and desire is. They get the land. They get the marriage. They get the son. You have a need. You have a desire. And God's going to answer that need and that desire. Healing you. Giving you that job. Mending that relationship. He's going to answer that. Ruth and Boaz had no idea that their son would be the grandfather of King David from whom Jesus would come. When you read the first chapter of Matthew, Ruth, Boaz, Obed, they're all there. They had no idea that there was a greater story going on. Whatever you're involved in, whatever situation you're in, can I tell you something? There is a greater story that God has going on, that he will use that for his kingdom and his purpose. Your need and your desire will be met, but something greater is going on. You just may not see it this side of eternity. You may not see it until you get into heaven. That's what living in hope is. I have this confidence in a kingdom, and there's a greater story going on with my life. And even though God will meet my needs as I have them, there's actually something far greater going on that I may not even discover until the other side of eternity. Some of you parents, your adult children, you may not know how God impacts and uses them till the other side of eternity, because there's something always greater going on. That's why Romans 15, 13 says, listen, we will overflow in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not just about me having something from God to navigate life. It's about a God of hope pouring so much hope into me that it's more than I can contain. And it flows out of me into the world. The world needs a tangible witness of the difference God makes not just through answering your need, but how you navigate above it in hope, even when the need is still there. And they look at you, and they see you have the same crisis they have, but they go, where are they getting this joy and peace? Where's it coming from? Because we have a hope, not an optimism. Choose hope. Act in hope. Sometimes in the mundane, sometimes in the outrageous but you have a boldness because of the hope that you have. And then when you do that, you wait. But you wait the right way. You wait growing in faith. You wait growing in joy. You become so much more dependent upon Jesus when you're waiting. You choose hope. You hang on. You get transformed. There's a strength that comes to you. You are renewed. And you know my story doesn't end with waiting. My story ends with God meeting my need, meeting my desire, and doing something greater that I may not see this side of eternity. This morning, not because there's a self-help book, not because you got psyched up by a message, but in the divine moment, by the Spirit of God, He wants to instill a hope in you. There are some of you who are here 
and you love Jesus. But if you were really honest, you'd go, Joel, right now there is despair. And it has wedged itself into my soul. And I need some hope. And I can't conjure it up. I need some hope. And the God of hope wants to pour hope into you. So that there'll be joy, there'll be peace, so that it will overflow at you. I don't know how he's going to answer your need. I don't know when he's going to answer your need. But I do know right here, right now, he wants to give you a hope that is even greater than your need, that will lift your faith. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the keyboardist to come up. And if you're here and you say, wow, Joel, there's just, I need some hope. There's despair that has taken root. All I'm going to ask you to do is one thing. Would you just stand to your feet? We're going to have a moment where we're going to believe God supernaturally. Just stand. Don't hesitate. Stand on up. We're going to believe God will supernaturally deposit hope in you. You can't conjure it up. You can't earn it. It's who he is, a God of hope. He's going to deposit it in you. Pastor Talk's going to come up and he's going to pray for us. But if you're here and that's you and you're standing, would you, would you maybe, if you're comfortable, do one thing, just lift your hands. It's an act of releasing to Jesus that burden. Whatever it is that has caused the despair, whether it's a family situation, a financial situation, there may be somebody here right now and everything is good, but there's just a dark cloud. You don't have any problems, but there's a dark cloud and you need hope. When you lift your hands, you are literally having this act of, I am giving this to you, Jesus. And what happens is now your hands are empty and empty hands can receive hope. And as Pastor Talk prays for us, receive literally a divine impartation of hope that comes directly from God. Choose hope. If you're able, I don't want anyone to look.